This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody, it's Lon Seibin, and it's time once again for your weekly wrap-up, and we've got a bunch of stuff to discuss this week, including the new Mi Box S, the new Pixel Slate from Google, a Google Plus retrospective now that that social media network is finally meeting its demise. The D-pad, the patents, and modern controllers will explore whether or not people can make controllers work better than they currently do. We'll also look at a few more things regarding Comcast's 2 gigabit service that I'm trying to get installed here at the house. And we'll also look at how Microsoft licenses Windows for low-end laptops. Lots to talk about today, so let's get to it. I want to begin, as we always do, by thanking our newest members here on the channel. We have Matt Jeske, who is an existing member, but moved over to the donor box page, which you can find at the link down below. And we also welcomed a new member, Herbert Sweet. I want to thank both of these folks for contributing to the channel and everyone who contributes on an ongoing basis, along with everyone else who watches on an ongoing basis, too, because all of those things equal channel growth. Now, we don't have an advertiser this week, but we do have a non-ad, an affiliate link for banggood.com. And they've got a coupon code for 6% off site-wide. It's coupon affiliate 6, which you can see on screen there. And if you go in through the link you see on screen, we'll get a small portion of the sale as well. Uh, They've got Xiaomi laptops and other devices that we've reviewed here on the channel from time to time. And definitely worth taking a look if you are looking for some cool gadgets. So let's take a look now at the week in review. On the Extras channel, we had... Uh, Three devices that we unboxed, two of them will be reviewed this week, the Lenovo Chromebook C330, the HP Sprocket, which is a little portable sticker printer, and the Chewy Lapbook SE that we reviewed last week on the main channel. Uh, We also took a look at the Apple Watch Series 4 on the main channel, and I talked about some of the things I use my watch for. It's kind of funny, I never intended on uh, wearing my Apple Watch when I bought it three years ago after I was done shooting the review, but it kind of grew on me. Uh, There's never been a killer app for it, but the aggregate of all the things that it does became something very useful in my life, and it's become a little bit more useful now uh, with this new version. And we also uh, look at the Apple Watch Series 3 and determine that perhaps it may not be necessary to go to the 4 if you have the 3. And the 3 is also a little less expensive right now and still available too. So check it out. You can get all the info you need on the watch there. And we also did a follow-up on the 8-bit dough controllers because a lot of folks were curious about the diagonals on that one. Uh, Some games where you're quickly going from like left to right or right to left have sometimes seen an errant diagonal get introduced into the mix as well. And we uh, put that to the test in the video that you can see on screen there and in the master playlist down below. And now it's time for a couple of things that are on my mind. And this is week 86 of me doing this as a full-time occupation. It's amazing how fast the weeks go by. And I often appear on television and radio here in my home state of Connecticut. And I was recently interviewed uh, right here in my basement office by NBC Connecticut about some of the new revelations on the Facebook security breach. It turns out uh, the people that got in with this token code thing that we talked about a week ago uh, were able to get access to people's birth dates and other personal information that can then be used to fish out things from other places, unfortunately. And I talked a little bit about that 
and they also give some advice as to how to avoid having your account hacked, which unfortunately in this case was pretty much impossible to avoid, uh, but you can check out the full interview linked on screen. And now it's time for some things in the news that caught my eye, and of course a lot of you also caught this one too. Uh, Xiaomi has a new Mi Box getting released here in the United States called the Mi Box S, and it's actually not all that different hardware-wise from the prior Mi Box that came out about a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, So we're going to be getting this one in. I did pre-order it. Uh, The big thing is that it has some additional controls on the remote. It can support voice commands on the remote, which I'm not sure the original did. Uh, And it also costs $10 less than the old Mi Box did as well. So perhaps there's some advantages to using old hardware uh, because you can still have a usable device and make it cost less. So we'll be taking a look at that when it does come out. So stay tuned. And Google announced their new Pixel Slate tablet. And there was kind of a buried lead on this because this is a Chrome OS device. They didn't say it in their product marketing. They're just calling it a tablet that runs Google stuff. Uh, So when you boot it up, you'll be in the Chrome OS interface. But of course, uh, it also will run Android apps. Uh, These are going to be powered by Intel processors. Uh, The 599 version comes with a Celeron. I'm not sure exactly what Celeron it is. And the more expensive versions will have Core M chips built in. Uh, So this will probably perform about where we saw the Surface Go perform. And the starting price on the Celeron is about the same price as what we've seen out of the Surface Go. So we'll be hopefully getting one of these in when it comes out. I asked to join the wait list to get one and we'll do a full review coming up very shortly. I did order the least expensive version because that's what I like to do always when I review products, so we'll see exactly how well this one does. And I'm very curious to see how well this will do versus the Acer tablet we just looked at, uh, which is running with a uh, presumably less expensive RISC processor inside versus the Intel chip in this one. So stay tuned, this will be another one uh, that I am eager to check out and very interesting to see how Chrome OS is quickly becoming more attractive to consumers with higher-end devices that can do more things than Chrome OS could do originally when it first came out a few years back. And Louis Rossman had a great video on his YouTube channel from the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company. They did an expose where they brought a MacBook Pro with a dead backlight into the Apple store for a repair. Now, you all recall a few weeks ago, I had a very unhappy experience at the Apple store. I kind of likened it to going to the DMV. It felt very bureaucratic, and at the end of the day, they wasted a couple hours of my time with no resolution to my issue. And in this case, what happened was they opened up the laptop in the store, and they noticed that the moisture indicators on the motherboard had indicated that there was some contact with moisture on this older MacBook. And they immediately said they're going to have to replace the motherboard for $1,100, another $100 in labor on top of that. And they said there's also a chance you have to replace the display for another $780. And to some degree, they were kind of steering these folks into buying a new computer versus trying to repair the perfectly usable one they already had. So what they did here, the CBC, is they took the computer and brought it to Manhattan to Lewis Rossman's shop. He opened it up and fixed it in all of maybe five or ten minutes and also indicated that those moisture indicators on the motherboard uh, can actually be tripped up by just humidity in the air. And the older the laptop gets and the more humidity it's exposed to, the higher likelihood that your motherboard will show some kind of moisture contact, even though there wasn't any uh, that would have caused any damage. So he found a broken pin on the connector to the display, he fixed it, and he said he probably wouldn't even have charged the person if they had brought the 
uh, device in for repair to him. And this is just another example of some of the issues that people have at the Apple store. And I think it's important that Apple start looking at how their store treats customers because I have not had a very good experience in there a majority of the time that I've gone in for some kind of service call, yet I've had a great experience 100% of the time with the call-in service where I think they treat customers a little better primarily because I think Apple's support is not trying to drive sales, whereas the stores have to drive sales to remain open. And I think that's probably a large part of why people are getting this kind of poor service. But definitely check out the video. It was very enlightening. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers. And our first question came in from JGA, and he wanted to know my thoughts on Google Plus shutting down. I have to say, I was a little sad to hear that they are shutting it down. I stopped using it a long time ago, as many people did uh, but my reason to stop using it was the fact that they were flagging my YouTube videos there as spam and threatened to not only kill my Google Plus page, but my entire YouTube channel. And I couldn't find anybody to talk to to fix the issue. And my YouTube channel person just recommended I stop posting there just to be safe. So that's what I did. I actually just cut it off because I was worried about losing everything. If they shut down my Google Plus account, it was linked to my YouTube channel and the whole thing would have gone kaput. So that was why I stopped posting there. Uh, but when it launched, it was actually really cool. They had a lot of people who were jumping into the service all at the same time. As we talked about a few weeks ago, there's some advantages to being in a new social network early to build up a following. And I'll show you an example of that in a minute. And it was just a really kind of a multimedia rich version of Twitter, in my opinion, in that uh, you could post things out to the world. You got a lot of connection back with folks. Google was really putting things in front of people in a really smart way. Uh, the Hangouts were really cool. There was a lot of neat things that uh, Google Plus was doing very early on, but it fizzled out pretty quick after that initial gee whiz factor went away. And I think there was a couple of reasons for it. Uh, the first was that they made the social network too complicated. Uh, they wanted you to put all of your friends into different buckets. So for example, here they were showing uh, in this uh, sample image how you would uh, have people who shared an interest in biking on your uh, profile be able to get content for, from you just for people that were interested in that topic. And I think this was just a little too much for people to deal with, given that Facebook, although it had this feature, didn't require you really to use it. And one of the onboarding things that Google Plus was doing was directing you to, to create this uh, tended garden of all these different buckets of people. And they linked it up to your Gmail, and they were really trying to make this circles thing be kind of a central way to organize your contacts. But it was just too much work, especially if you had a bunch of people that started following you and vice versa. Uh, when you first got onto the platform, you were going to spend a lot of time just th doing this stuff versus actually using the service. And I think that was one of the major knocks against it. I kind of liken launching a social network to restaurants in my small town here. Uh, I live in a small area, so if a new restaurant opens up and a few people go and have a bad experience in the first week, you're done. It's that, it's that you know, cutthroat. But that's kind of what social networks are like, too, because you only have so much time. And if you're going to spend all this time dragging people into circles versus actually talking to them, I think that could be a big problem. Uh, but there were some stars that launched on this because there was some really cool features uh, that Google Plus launched with. One of them was the Google Hangouts feature. And initially, you could go into a Hangout and then invite the world in with you. And there was kind of a limit to how many people could come in at once. So it was one of these exclusive things. And uh, this young lady, Daria Musk, who lives in my home state of Connecticut, actually, uh, built up a huge following. She was doing these live jam sessions on Google Plus and bringing in other musicians. She was recording those sessions and uh, putting them up on her profile. And it really uh, built out very quickly for her. And she ended up doing a TED Talk on this topic. And again, she was an early adopter of a social 
social network, and if you can uh, provide some talent to a social network and get in before others do, you can really build up a profile very, very quickly. And Hangouts was just a really cool innovation because it really wasn't something that easy at that point in time for communicating with multiple people. And the fact that it would automatically switch camera angles to the different person speaking was really neat. Uh, that was something that no one had seen before. And the fact that it ran in a web browser was really, really innovative. And of course, they later launched some other tools as well. So Hangouts came out of Google+. Plus. It's certainly one of Google's key products right now. That's going to continue. Another thing that came out of Hangouts was Hangouts On Air, which allowed you to have that Google Hangout, but then also stream it out to others to watch as well. They even had some features where you could have people call in via a phone or another Hangout request into your Hangout for that broadcast. Uh, that became part of YouTube's streaming apparatus. So there was a lot of things here that eventually got ingested into other products. Another big product was Google Photos, which I'm sure many of you use. Uh, I don't know if that began as a Plus product specifically, but it launched with Plus and now is its own product and a very mature and robust photo organizing and sharing platform. Uh, that also came out of Google Plus. And I think what you could argue here is that YouTube became the better social media strategy for Google in the end because YouTube now has as many logged in users month to month as Facebook, has longer on-site time than Facebook does, and really is a Facebook competitor in my opinion, which is why Facebook is launching a video product to try to compete with YouTube. So I think really what uh, Google found was their niche was doing this video stuff, which ties in much better with their search engine and other algorithms that try to get content of interest to people in front of them when they're looking for that particular type of content. And TechCrunch put up a pretty good obituary for Google Plus that you can check out at the link you see on screen. Uh, what was really notable here is in the first uh, lead sentence that 90% of Google Plus users' sessions are less than five seconds long. So people would go into the service and then just immediately leave. So there was some people still hanging around out there, but I think uh, this is it for Google Plus and probably has been it for some time. And I wanted to post this question from Hope For All that came in the other day to see if maybe some of you might be able to shed some additional light on this uh, question about control pad diagonals. Uh, it's definitely something that impacts some folks out there who play specific types of games. And uh, Hope For All here was saying that uh, most controller manufacturers can't prevent this problem because of a Nintendo patent. Uh, and I went out and took a look at uh, what the patents are that are currently out there, and I can't see one that is current. So we'll step through that in a second. Uh, but one thing of note here is Hope For All also mentions that even the Nintendo Switch Pro Controller has this problem too on its directional pad uh, because they don't have the structure that the original controllers had for preventing errant diagonals. And this is actually kind of an interesting uh, dive into this topic I uh, did over the weekend here. So the only D-pad patents I could find were these two that you see on screen. Uh, both of them have now expired. I believe there was a 20-year uh, lifetime to a patent, and after that, uh, the innovation or the invention is available for others to replicate. Uh, this is also why we are able to see NES and SNES clone consoles, because those patents have expired, and now other manufacturers can uh, take what Nintendo had originally patented. Uh, but they can't, of course, violate Nintendo's copyright or IP in the process. So there are some uh, tricks to this stuff. But I don't think you can put a copyright on something like this. Now, this is the patent that has expired, uh, their most recent one from 1987. And it shows this ball structure here that has the D-pad kind of rocking on this ball to prevent 
uh, errant diagonals. And there's some other things that were worked into the uh, controller design that were not as easily visible as this one in the patent, but this gives you an idea as to what uh, some of the issues that others were having trying to replicate these things. But this patent, again, expired about 20 years after it was issued, uh, so it shouldn't be an, an issue any longer. Although I suspect that perhaps the reason why we're seeing this problem on controllers is that it costs more to probably make a controller like this, uh, which is likely the reason why we're not seeing others trying to correct this issue. This probably is a more complicated mechanism to design and as such would add a significant cost to the final product. And in the end, I wasn't even noticing it, but other uh, better gamers were. Uh, which is probably the uh, metric that a lot of these controller manufacturers, including Nintendo, probably made when designing D-pads for their current line of controllers. And if you look at the Nintendo design, uh, just like the Xbox, the thumbsticks are kind of the front and center piece of the actual control scheme with the D-pad, kind of a secondary thing. But Nintendo might want to rethink this now that uh, the retro games are becoming so much more popular on their systems. And I also wonder if those new uh, Wii, uh, new uh, NES-style controllers for the Switch have this problem as well. Maybe we should get some in and do a quick test of that too, because I'm really curious now to see exactly what we can expect on current modern controllers that are apparently not following this classic design, which many say was better. And if you're curious about the history of the D-pad, which Nintendo did in fact invent on their Game & Watch systems many years ago, uh, you can check out this link from Polygon, which has a lot more information, along with a great video that the gaming historian posted not too long ago uh, for even more detail. So definitely check it out, a multimedia experience on the D-pad. And my Q&A for you this week is whether or not uh, I am missing something on this topic. Is there another patent out there that I just didn't get with my initial research here? Uh, let me know down in the comments below so we can finally get to the bottom of this. But maybe uh, this might prompt other game controller manufacturers, including 8BitDo, to start looking at this diagonal issue and make their controllers a little better for gamers. As we discussed in my video, I didn't see this issue with the Xbox One D-pad, but that D-pad isn't all that great to begin with. So it'd be great to be able to replicate one of these things again and get it exactly uh, the way the original controllers perform because mine are starting to wear out and I'm sure many others are too. And this next question comes in from Too Much Sauce, who had a question about this gigabit service I'm looking at from Comcast. Now, if you missed my discussion last week, I'll put it down in the master playlist so you can see it. Uh, but in a nutshell, I am in an area that only has Comcast as a feasible broadband option. I have a phone company that offers like terrible DSL service, the same service they've been offering for the last 17 years. Uh, and Comcast really is my only high-speed offering. Uh, the big challenge we've had here on the channel is with uploads because we're uploading to four different platforms uh, part of YouTube content ID system requires me to re-upload the extras channel content to content ID in a separate upload. So we're, we're uploading stuff all day long on top of doing some client work and some other things that I do on the side. And I'm really feeling the pinch here from a productivity standpoint, both for me, uh, but also Corey, who I pay to, to upload stuff here on the channel as well, because he's spending a large part, portion of his day uh, just babysitting uploads. Uh, some platforms are more forgiving than others. So for example, if something happens and the upload on YouTube gets interrupted a third of the way through, you can just upload the file again and it will pick up from where it left off. But the other platforms we're working with 
uh, are not as easy to work with on interruptions like that. And if we're trying to get a video up to multiple platforms at the same time, uh, that 12 megabits per second, which is my max upload speed right now, gets divvied up uh, four different ways. And you can imagine how long it takes to send up one of these weekly wrap-ups, for example. And we really need to get that uh, dealt with because I just feel like it's wasting my time and Corey's time who I'm paying to do all this. So would I, will I see a measurable return on investment here? I think probably, especially if I'm able to uh, get more content into the pipeline because we're not waiting for things to upload. We can start working on the next video. I think that might uh, certainly help. And I just need the speed because it's just getting really frustrating. I had a client project that required me to upload a uh, video in ProRes format to a broadcaster. And that, I think it was like a two minute video. It was like eight or 10 gigabytes in total size. And you can imagine how long that took to get up there. And if I had some other issue, it would be a big problem. Uh, he's also wondering about uh, why or how this can be profitable for Comcast in the long run. And I think it is really not something that uh, they would discontinue because it doesn't actually change their infrastructure. And that is why this is so hard for them to install and why it's such a production uh, to get it installed. So let me show you what's hanging out uh, outside of my driveway here. Uh, this is a node. This is called a fiber to coax node. And this device takes fiber optic cable from one of the Comcast fiber taps and converts it to coax cable. That is how Comcast serves a majority of their customers. But there is fiber optic cable running right by my house and they can uh, very easily just run another cable for me uh, for this service and it basically bypasses this coax thing completely. And that's how they're able to deliver that speed in a way that doesn't uh, disrupt the rest of their infrastructure. It's already there. They've got apparently enough bandwidth on these fiber optic lines now to make this work for me. Uh, and that's how they're going to do it. Uh, I don't think this is something that they would offer to the world because it's just not sustainable in that sense. They'd have to run a lot more fiber optic cable and their network architecture doesn't really support that. But I think what they found is that uh, most customers are focused on the downstream speed, uh, which they're able to deliver in higher and higher volumes because there is so much available bandwidth on those coax cables and they're able to keep their architecture the same for the most part. Uh, the upload is really where the challenge is, and consumers to Comcast are just not demanding upload speed as much as they are download speed. And in this instance, they're able to come out and give people who do need that upload speed, the minority of us, the service they need at a high price, but they're offering it at a price that's not uh, completely out of bounds for me. And that is, I think, how they're going to keep some of the local smaller ISPs out of the market from competing with them. Because if they can make me happy and maybe the half dozen other people around uh, the area that need this kind of upload speed, then perhaps we won't be so eager to try to convince one of these smaller ISPs to come in or organize ourselves to do so. Uh, they can just offer it to those who need it and then continue giving the rest of the consumers the download speeds that they want. And many consumers fall into the tyranny of the default. Comcast is what we use, and it's just easy to write the check every month and not have to think about how you could be doing better, uh, and that is what's going on. But uh, there is fiber optic cable from Comcast running in front of your house right now, and if you see one of these larger rectangular boxes, uh, there is fiber going into that thing and then converting it out to coax. And if you go out on your uh, telephone poles around your home, you'll see these little orange tags uh, hanging up on the cable to indicate that it is a fiber optic cable. So from the Comcast standpoint, uh, this is not all that difficult to maintain. Uh, and it does work within their existing infrastructure. And it's only uh, going to continue this way until customers really need or want 
uh, more upload speed, and I don't see a majority of consumers asking for that in the near future. But Fiber nodes to coax are not the only way Comcast is now delivering service to customers. I got this note from Christopher Dale about how Comcast hooked up his home, and it looks like he's in a newer neighborhood. And in this instance, he's running something called RF over glass, where there is fiber optic coming in from Comcast and they convert it to coax inside the home. So in many ways, this is kind of like a uh, mini node that's in the house. And what it does, it spits out uh, coax here. So Comcast can offer Christopher the same hardware that they might offer to somebody in a coax only neighborhood. But it looks like Comcast is starting to see there's probably some value here just to getting fiber run to start with. And then as time and technology advance, they'll be able to convert more of these newer neighborhoods over to fiber optic technology easier. And of course, that certainly would be with the fiber coming directly into the home versus a node somewhere else in the neighborhood. So I think this is where they're going. They're seeing fiber being the future. And ultimately, I think for everyone, we'll have faster connections. But again, it's a matter of consumers needing that upstream bandwidth and communicating that to their vendors. And we'll have to see how long it takes for uh, more of us to need more upstream bandwidth before I think we have more general service offerings from the big ISPs. And Terry Malone made a very good point on last week's wrap-up that really the first 28.8K of a gigabit connection is about 90% of gigabit's value in human terms, just because it doesn't take all that much to send some text through at that speed. You could get an email very quickly, even at 28.8, and it's really hard to really measure a much greater value to that faster connection if you were just sending text back and forth. And from the standpoint of you know, the Gutenberg press level of innovation that the internet provided the world and that everybody could send uh, words to each other so much faster than ever before, that certainly is something you could achieve even with a dial-up modem. But it's the video that's really driving everything. It's driving me. That's how I run this business. And it's driving me in the sense that I have to be able to upload more video faster to uh, more places. And people who are consuming video, of course, are demanding all of that downstream video. And video really is what's clogging up the net and what's also leading to all of these major policy debates, specifically around net neutrality and other things. I think if we didn't have all this video to push around, we probably wouldn't be arguing as much about uh, how the internet should or should not be regulated. But I thought that was a very good uh, comment and definitely something worth thinking about. And this last question came in from Andrew Rauch, who pointed me in the direction of a breakdown of all of the different Windows 10 licenses that are offered to OEMs, to manufacturers, when they're making new computers. And we're often seeing uh, many computers that we review here on the channel, the cheap ones, coming only with 32 gigabytes of storage. Uh, In the video that we did just this past week of the Chewy Lapbook SE, uh, they put Windows on that 32 gigabyte eMMC partition, but they also had an M2 SATA drive built in with an extra 128 gigabytes of storage, but the Windows install had to be put on that 32 gigabyte eMMC. And this link here will give you some ideas to what some of these OEMs are paying. Uh, likely they're paying less than this because they're buying at volume, but if I was to open up a computer factory tomorrow, this is probably what I would be paying. And if you want a Windows license on an entry-level machine, it has to be running an Atom, Celeron, or Pentium processor. It needs four gigabytes or less, 32 gigabytes maximum storage, uh, and it has to be a 14.1-inch display or lower for a laptop. Uh, Tablets have to be 11.6-inch or smaller, and all-in-ones are 17 inches or smaller. And if you can meet that criteria, 
uh, then the cost is 25 bucks. Now, whether or not uh, Microsoft would consider that extra SSD that they're selling with the Chewy legit or not, that's up to them and Microsoft to hammer out, but it looks like that's why they did what they did. Uh, on the value side, you basically have the same hardware here, but you can go up to 64 gigabytes of internal storage SSD, or they'll let you put in a 500 gigabyte hard disk drive, but again, you've got to stick within the same uh, display limitations. And just adding that extra storage is going to cost the vendor an additional 20 bucks to Microsoft. So you can see how this scales as you're manufacturing thousands of units. Uh, they also have the core, which is basically like your i5 uh, chips and whatnot. Uh, the price on those is about $65, and it must not meet the specs below. So in other words, a 720p display gets you the core, it appears. And then if you have a core plus uh, with a high-end CPU, uh, you are paying $86, so it's quite a big uptick here uh, when you go above 4 gigabytes and uh, above a 1080p display, which is probably why we see some of these 15-inch uh, laptops with the 720p display and only 4 gigs of RAM because they want to try to get that uh, lower licensing charge there. And then if you go to the advanced section here, you're pretty much paying almost retail price for that Windows license that includes any computer that ships with a 4K resolution display. So helpful little guide there. You can check out more at the article linked on screen from uh, Paul Therat's site. He's got a lot of great Windows information there, so definitely worth checking it out for that stuff too. And our channel of the week this week is about space. You all know that I'm a big space nut, and hopefully we'll be covering some more SpaceX launches in the near future. And I wanted to I'll point you out a great channel and video this week about a very serious incident that occurred on a Soyuz launch that was going to the International Space Station. Uh, so right now, the Russian uh, Soyuz vehicle is the only way to get humans off the planet Earth and send them to the space station. The Chinese do have their own system, but for space station travel, the uh, Russian rocket is it. It's been a very reliable uh, rocket over the many, many years that this design has worked for uh, the Russians and now the uh, Russians and the Americans. But this past week, uh, there was a major incident where a mid-flight abort had to take place. These are very, very rare, uh, and it basically resulted in the astronauts not getting to space and having to make an emergency landing. Uh, and Scott Manley's channel began, I think, as mostly a, a channel with Kerbal Space Program tips, but he's gone beyond that now to uh, do some great coverage of the space program in general. He's got a ton of subscribers. You can definitely check him out if you are uh, interested in this sort of stuff. And he covers uh, what went wrong with this particular launch and how they got themselves back. And there's a tremendous amount of redundancy built into the Soyuz rocket because the main escape rockets had already uh, detached from the uh, rocket stack here, and they used a secondary set to detach themselves from the failing rocket and get back to Earth. Uh, really amazing stuff, and you can learn more about exactly what went on with uh, Scott's analysis that you can find linked on screen. So this week, we've got a bunch of stuff coming up on the channel, including a review of the new HP Sprocket 2 a little photo printer. We unboxed this the other day on the Extras channel, so you'll see what some of the things you can do with that are. I also got in this Chromebook from Lenovo. This is their new C330. It's an all-in-one. It costs $279, but they also have a laptop version that looks very similar with the same guts uh, that costs $249. Uh, this has an IPS display built in, 720p, but pretty nice display uh, for the price point. Very uh, competitive with the Acer version that we looked at recently, so we'll do a deep dive in that. And this is one I know a lot of you have been waiting on, which is the uh, Huawei MateBook. 
Uh, this has the Ryzen processor built in, so it should be okay for gaming. And I believe it's coming in at around $700 or so at Walmart here in the U.S. So that just came in. I'm going to be starting my evaluation of it a little later this afternoon. And I also do hope to get to the short throw projector from ViewSonic that came in about two weeks ago. Uh, just some of the other stuff we've been looking at on the channel has been bumping this back on the schedule, but we will get to it eventually if anyone's interested in it. I'm just curious about how short throw projectors work because I haven't played with one before, so it'll be fun to uh, play around with this one. They're also advertising uh, very minimal uh, latency for video games too. So we'll take a look at its gaming capabilities if we do get to it this week. Now, if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or one-time contribution to the channel. We also have our ongoing relationship with Plex, where if you sign up for a free Plex account, no credit card required, we get a small commission. Uh, we also get a commission for signing up for a Plex Pass subscription, or if you are gifting it to somebody else, that will help the channel as well. Uh, we're also on a number of other channels, including my extras channel, where I unbox stuff and upload supplementary content. We have the podcast, where I upload audio versions of this show and a few other things that I do. I, we have the Snippets channel, which is uh, smaller bite-sized portions of what you see here for the wrap-up in, in search-friendly format. And we have my live stream archive at lon.tv slash live streams, where you can watch some of my prior live streams that I do. And that's one of the other things I'm hoping a more reliable connection will help me with is to have more reliable live streams. Uh, we often get bumped out. Uh, when we do live streams currently with my existing Comcast connection, we haven't figured out what the problem is with it, but hopefully uh, having a more reliable direct fiber connection will make those a little better. If you like what I do and want to get notified every time I do something else, you can click on the bell on any of my channels to get a notification pushed out to your devices. And we also have some other ways to engage with the channel. My email list is at lon.tv email, a very infrequent thing. Probably will send one out in the next week or two. Uh, we have my Facebook page at lon.tv slash Facebook, and I've been posting a lot of content over there now as well. We got into their monetization program. We have the Facebook group at lon.tv slash Facebook group where you can interact with other fans of the channel. I've really enjoyed uh, not only engaging with all of you, but watching you engage with each other. So that's been a lot of fun to see develop. And we've got almost 500 people in there now, which is really cool. And we have the store at lon.tv slash store. Uh, right now we have the Amazon 8-inch tablet available there at a lower than new price. And if you want to make me an offer, email me and I will consider any offer you make. And I might uh, do a little haggling with you. So let's get, get going. I want to get rid of that thing. Uh, if you want to get notified every time I add something else to the store, you can go to lon.tv slash store alert. And that's going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. I want to thank you all for your ongoing support of the channel by watching and contributing and making comments and everything else that helps guide the content here to make it better and better. And I really do appreciate everyone who's been sticking with me over these years. And there will be a lot more to come this week and all the other weeks ahead from that as well. Until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Chris Allegretta, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, Tom Albrecht, Too Much Sauce, Gerard Newberg and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv/support to learn more.
And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.